had some uh, wonderful announcements and some uh, uh, many things going on and just wanted to encourage you to be a part of that. Um, the thing that April shared, I'm excited for. Um, as uh, on Easter Sunday, we want to kind of uh, display all the work that's been done. And it would be a, a testimony of how Jesus had showed victory to you. Um, and so uh, it's, it'll all culminate during Lent. And so make sure you sign up for that if you're interested. And uh, we're looking forward to that. And um, all of our mission trips, it's a good time to start praying and signing up. And you might be saying, ah, oh, but it's, uh, and all the obstacles will come up. Not enough money or time, and which none of us really have enough of, but um, something to pray for and apply for and see if you could uh, join a team. And uh, uh, this year we're looking forward to uh, even, a, uh, even, even a more special um, time than what we had last year. It always gets a little better, it seems like. And so we're looking forward to that. Well, today as we um, think about uh, this topic of love, and from today and the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at this very famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Oftentimes you hear this in weddings and, and places like this, uh, this these verses um, mentioned. And we're going to go in depth and look at what love really looks like because love is the uh, greatest of all attributes that God shows us. God himself is love. And so we're going to be looking at this topic of love. And I want to ask you a question to ponder. In all the years of school that you have gone through, let's start all the way back from kindergarten and all the way up to how many, you know, college degrees or doctor degrees you might have. You know, you might think of one person, think of a teacher who stands out, a teacher or two. And some of you might be a a professor that you had. Some of it, you know, might be, um, you know, I think of like seminary professors who took time to talk to me and listen to me, or I think of other teachers, and they all stand, we all have someone who stands out, and oftentimes, I I bet if if not 100%, the person who stands out is someone who loved us, someone who took time to care, um, someone who uh, invested themselves into you, someone who gave you hope, encouraged you, and they demonstrated love in this way. I remember, I think it was my eighth or ninth birthday, and I remember one of my teachers showed up to my birthday party. I invited him, he actually came, Mr. Robinson, right? He was, he seemed so old at the time, but in hindsight, he wasn't too old, and um, I remember him, uh, African-American, he had the perfect hair, and really nice man, and he drove, I remember, the coolest car. This was back in the early 80s, and he drove um, a Honda Accord, which I've never seen before. So I remember when he came in his green Honda Accord, and I remember all of us came out and said, oh my gosh, he drove his car here from Japan, you know, and we were like, wow, and this is, you know, this car's made in Japan, and we were like so intrigued by it. And he came and hung out for a little bit. And it stands out for, Mr. Robinson stands out to me for a few reasons. Number one was that was the only birthday party I had as a child, so that was a, a big moment. Uh, but number two, he showed up. He didn't get paid overtime. Um, he didn't get paid to come. Uh, he drove, this is when I was living in a difficult, uh, a dangerous part of Oakland. He drove into the hood uh, to come and spend time uh, with a student. And there was like five of us. And I have a picture, and I was looking for it, and I couldn't find it, but my picture was we had a stack. You know, uh, when you go to a Korean one-year party, they stack up, like, oranges and stuff. My mom stacked up hamburgers on one side. 
And then she stacked up fried chicken on the other. And it was me, Mr. Robinson, and my three other friends, and my friend's little sister who got pushed into the group, um, I guess, you know. And uh, that was my picture, but I remember him. And he cared, and he was kind. I, I don't know where he went to school. I don't know what kind of degrees he had. Um, I don't know how famous he was. I don't know how rich he was. But all I remember is he loved, he cared. And I'm sure for all of us, that is the person who comes to mind. And in any relationship, and you know, 1 Corinthians 13 is often used in weddings, and even in a marriage relationship, in a family relationship, it is the person who loves that impacts us the most. Think of the relatives in your life, whether it's the uncle or the aunt or the grandma, grandfather. It's not the richest, it's not the smartest or the best looking or the most famous that you care about. It's the one who loved us. You see, that's my favorite. You look at a a marriage and you say, boy, that is a, a beautiful marriage. It's not because one of them is so rich or both of them are so good looking or they have so much influence and power in this world. Or they're so smart. No, we say, oh, they love each other. And a child, that is all they want. A mother, father who loves me. A home where I can experience this love. That child is rich. That child, we, we can say, is living in a rich, loving family. And, uh, you know, this is what the passage is talking about. Just a little background here. We started reading, it's a little weird, right? We started reading at the last verse of chapter 12 into chapter 13. Chapter 12 discusses all the spiritual gifts that people were bickering about in Corinth. And if you haven't gotten the the picture yet, Corinth was a divided, divisive church. They had their allegiances. They had the rich, the poor. They had now those who had certain spiritual gifts, and they were elevated as more spiritual than those who didn't. And he talks about all these spiritual gifts. He lectures on them. And then at the end, he says something intriguing. He says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. And then he goes into this beautiful section. The highest, the best, the higher gift, the most excellent way, it is the gift of love. So he says we ought to love in this way. We are called to love. You know, this little phrase here in verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gift. Earnestly desire. It literally means to burn with zeal, to covet after something. And in a negative way, it's used for those who covet after money or lust after the opposite gender. And it's talked about in a negative way, but in a positive way. He's saying, now covet. Have a zeal to love, to be loved in this way. And so we are called today. The application for today is that you would become more loving. That we would become more loving. That 2024, that this year of your life, you would be the most loving, intentionally loving person. It's sad to say sometimes as we get older, our attitude is, accept me as I am. I'm not going to change. This is who I am. But we're called to continually grow, to earnestly desire the greater gift, the gift of love. Eugene Peterson says it so well as he talks about how hard it is to love. And here's a quote I want to read. Every day I put love on the line. There is nothing I am good, nothing I am less good at than love. 
I am far better in competition than in love. I am far better at responding to my instincts and ambitions to get ahead and make my mark than I am at figuring out how to love another. I am schooled and trained in acquisitive skills and getting my own way, and yet I decide every day to set aside what I can do best and attempt what I do very clumsily, open myself to the frustrations and failures of loving, daring to believe that failing in love is better than succeeding in pride. It is difficult. Our pride often gets in the way and we say, hey, this is who I am. I don't care if you take it or not. But we're called to love. We're called to make this our spiritual gift. Uh, the word love, agape, many of us in church are familiar with that Greek word. There were different words. Um, scholars talk about how they, the New Testament comes about and the Christians come about and they take this word agape, which had a loose meaning and it was interchangeable, just meant love, but they added the meaning into the word and it became their own. Leon Morris talks about this word agape. He says this Greek word was not in common use before the New Testament, but the Christians took it up, made it their characteristic word for love. He describes it this way. It is, a, it is a love for the utterly unworthy, a love that proceeds from a God who is love. It is a love lavished on others without a thought whether they are worthy or not. It proceeds from the nature of the lover, not from the attractiveness in the beloved. He says that so well. So we see here two parts that we want to do. The first part is, as Paul discusses love, he goes over these five various spiritual gifts that everyone was praising. And he says, if you do all these five, and you are spectacular, quote-unquote spiritually, but if you don't have love, you are nothing. Nothing. A gong, you are nothing, he says. And so these are the five. This is the background here. Uh, spiritual abilities without love is nothing. Number one is, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Some have said that they spoke in tongues. There are some traditions today, some denominations where they will say they speak in tongues. And so he says, if you speak in tongues, if you could speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but if you do not have love, he says you are a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. It's interesting, you know, uh, Corinth in that region was famous at the time for their bronze. And the bronze was elevated to the same level of almost as gold, the scholars talk about. And so bronze, there would be these gongs, and they would have it there as an instrument or an uh, instrument to use to draw attention to, but it would be made out of the bronze. So really, the order there was silver, bronze, and then silver. Uh, gold, bronze, and then silver. So it was really valuable. And he says, even if it is something you think is so valuable as being able to speak in the tongues of angels and of men, without love, it is like someone banging on the cymbal. Imagine trying to go to sleep. I don't know what time you go to sleep. But let's say one in the morning, your neighbor is outside banging on, the, on this uh, gong. What is valuable becomes worthless. And that's what he's saying. You who might come out and speak in tongues if you do not have love. Uh, it is a clanging symbol. It is obnoxious. Um, the second spiritual gift he compares it with, he talks about verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries 
and all knowledge. And if I have faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. So prophetic powers, someone who can now say, thus says the Lord. Um, really, I, in a side note, I think it is far more important and to get this word of God from the literal word of God and not from someone that now tells you something because it can be so easily abused and manipulated. And thus says the Lord, God told me this, God told me that. How do you argue with that? And how do you know? Unless you go to the word. But these are people that says they had the gift of prophecy. Secondly, or thirdly, was this understanding of mysteries. They had the answer to everything. Bible questions and theology questions, even human trivial questions, they knew everything. You could put them on, you know, on jeopardy and they would win. And you could ask them any questions about the Bible and they would give you an answer. He says, even if you knew it all, if you do not have love, verse 2 at the end says, I am nothing. Nothing means nothing. And then the last example he talks about is someone willing to give away all that they have. In verse 3, if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It's pretty impressive if someone would give away all that they had. And some people would have, and were doing that. And they would let them know, I gave away I gave away my retirement account to give to the poor. I gave away my savings so I can give to the poor. And many people were impressed with that, but they said, if you give it, but you do not have love, it is nothing. And it says here, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. The NIV uh, has a footnote. If I surrender my body so I may boast. And some uh, scholars say that's the better translation of that phrase. If I surrender my body so I may boast, there was an ancient practice of selling oneself into slavery to raise funds for the poor. Now, this is, uh, in today's terms, uh, psychologists call this the martyr complex. They're willing to now give of themselves, sacrifice of themselves, let other people know I sacrifice so much to get the applause of others. But it's, even if you give of yourself, even if you are willing to give away all your possessions and give your own time away, if you don't have love, you are nothing. A person who has a martyr complex, and sometimes you hear parents say this to their children, you know, I have given up everything for you. I have moved here for you. Think about the pressure of the elementary student. So that you have to go to this school and do this and that and have perfect grades and the pressure that's given there. And this was happening in the church. People were boasting about all that they gave, all that they sacrificed, and all they wanted was the applause of others and they had no love. And he says, that's worthless if you do not have love. So we see here today um, what this true love will look like what it entails, and there was a few thoughts I had and I wanted to share this with you. How can we love? Number one, it has to be an orderly love. This is the true love, an orderly love. I get this phrase from St. Augustine, who writes about this several times. He talks about that our love has to be a rightly ordered love. He says everyone loves, but it's not in the right order. And this was his argument. 
It's not that it's sin and bad and good. No, we loved everything. We just have it out of order. And so obviously God has to be first. We have to think about others first. Husbands, lay down your lives for your wives. We have to think about our spouses. We have to think about children. We have to think about our neighbors. A rightly ordered love. Craig Blombert says, uh, love without an objective grounding in the living triune God of the universe runs rampant. Well, we, we use the word love so loosely. In all these terms today, we say um, things like, I've fallen in love. That is not love. Uh, we often say, oh, this person is my lover. Well, what does that mean? Uh, we hear, oh, love is love. And we ask them, well, can you define love? Yeah, love is love. I just defined it. Uh, it's a circular argument. But we have to be so really cautious and understand The love that we have has to be an orderly love. That we have to now love God and the things that he loves first in order to love him correctly. A person cannot say, I love you. Will you be my spouse and yet love others, love other women in the same way? It doesn't work in that sense. And so our love has to be reordered. True love, secondly, is costly. It has to be uh, something that costs us. You think about the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That he gave. Love leads to a sacrifice that he gave. John here writes this, what did he give? Not a son, but his only son. And he gave in this way. So there is a cost to love. We are often afraid to step into a loving opportunity because it might cost us, it might inconvenience us. And whether we consciously do it or not, we do do it. We do think, is it worth it? And we count the cost. I don't want to. C.S. Lewis in uh, The Four Loves says it so well. To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Just even an animal. And there's probably some of you are in the same boat as us where you love dogs, but you think about, oh, should we get another dog? And we have discussions like that. And I think our iPhones and Instagram all picks up on it. And so all the feeds are now about dogs, cutest dogs in the world. And, oh, and everyone, oh, my dog looks sleeping next to me and eats this and it's, it's so fun. And But then you think, oh, gosh, the haircuts. <laughs> my dog's haircut costs a lot more than my haircuts. Um, when I'm searching to travel, I have to look for pet-friendly places and they charge you an arm and a leg, um, the vet. 
they charge you whatever they want, and you can't say no. You can't ask, you know, the dog, is it okay? And you think about this, right? And you think about that. But it is costly. And so oftentimes we just close ourselves off to other people. New friends, no. Church friendships, no. Uh, less people is better. Because the more I have, it might cost me more. But the Christian love is a love that is giving. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor in the World War II era, very famous theologian pastor um, who was uh, executed in his 30s um, for his failed uh, assassination attempt on Hitler and um, as the Nazis rose to power, and uh, some of the state churches were succumbing to now the Nazi, uh, Nazis, uh, he stood against them. And uh, one of the things that he found that helped him so much is that he found a community, a group, started as a little hospital almost, called Bethel. Bethel, the place in the Bible, literally means the house of God. And he found this group called Bethel. And when he had got there, uh, Bethel was a place that started in 1967. It was a Christian community for people with epilepsy. And so as people who had epilepsy, this group called Bethel would invite them and they would care for them. If some of them, they struggled and they didn't have, they would provide for them. If some of them didn't have family to care, they would care for them. But it was a Christian group and it started expanding and um, in the 1900s, it became now to be a, to several facilities to care for over 1,600 physically and mentally disabled persons. And eventually, Bethel became its own community. And there was a whole town, literally, of schools, churches, hospitals, and it became its own place. It is at that place when he saw the value of what the Christians were doing that he gained the strength he wrote against what Hitler was for, he fought against because of what he saw there. A group of Christians would take up the call to love, that it would be so costly in this way. Love, lastly, it's costly, it benefits others. Obviously, this is obvious, it comes one with the other. Bonhoeffer says, human love is directed to the other person for his sake. Spiritual love loves him for Christ's sake. Therefore, human love seeks direct contact with the other person. It loves him not as a free person, but as one who is, whom it binds to itself. It wants to gain, to capture by every means, to use force, to desire, to be irresistible, to rule. So he's saying, we love. We want to love the other person, but ultimately we love for Christ's sake. Because we have reordered our love as the people of God, as God first. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So everything goes through that filter. And I love God. I do as he says. I love others. I love others who are less lovable, who are difficult, who is different. And I love them for Christ's sake. And we look to the gospel and we see the exact story of that. The God who gave his only son to love those who were unlovable. Me. Us. And so the gospel humbles us to love in this way. 
I close with this passage, and anytime you think about love, you cannot help to go to 1 John 4, 7, and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, so that we might live through him. Brothers and sisters, let us love one another, for love is from God. Let's look to him, find our strength, inspiration, perfect example of what love is, and let's love others for Christ's sake. Let's pray together. We love because, Lord, you first loved us. We love because we claim to know you, God, and understand you, so we are able to love you. You love us not because we are so lovable. You love us in spite of our sin. And so, Lord, we are humbled. Who are we to deviate from that? So God, help us to now love. Help us to love our family. Help us to love those around us, our neighbors, our church family. Help us to love deeply. Help us to earnestly desire this more than anything else, more than money or education or fame or power, to love. So we would be known in that way. We try on our own. We fail often. But we look to the cross we're able to do it through you. In Jesus' name, amen.